Okay. I want to uh, introduce the video. <laughs> well, maybe not. Uh, I've been asked to uh, bring closure to this uh, week of chapels. Uh, and uh, this assignment has gone through a number of permutations. Um, I was given an original assignment, and then it sort of changed, and then I was supposed to wait and see what the, the guys said on Monday and Wednesday, and then it changed again. And it's also a different assignment for different people, whether I'm listening to uh, Dave Maddox, who asked me to do this, or to some students uh, who had questions and so forth after Monday and Wednesday. So what I'm going to do is give about five messages in one, um, what I'm going to try and do is make everybody happy or unhappy. So in doing so, I'm going to have to do my best Doug Bookman impersonation. <laughs> that is, I'm going to try and hit a number of seemingly unconnected points. <laughs> and then try to draw them together into a few coherent, coherent ideas that are worth remembering. As I begin, uh, I want to issue a warning, however. I'm going to say some things that some of you will not want to hear. Uh, one of the things that Dave Maddox talked to me about Wednesday is that uh, one of the things he's concerned about on this campus is that students tend to tune out people that they don't want to hear. They hear something that they're not familiar with or that they disagree with, and so they just tune out. Uh, my challenge to you this morning is to stay tuned in and figure out where I'm wrong because no doubt many of you will think I am in a number of instances. In fact, we'll begin on a very controversial note. I want to disagree strenuously with a basic presupposition shared by both of the week's previous speakers. Both mentioned it briefly and moved on. I'm going to mention it in some greater depth. And that is that both believe that America was founded as a Christian nation. And I'm here this morning to say America was not founded as a Christian nation. It was not a Christian nation at any time, and it is not today. Now, I've danced around this issue for years um, because I didn't want to upset anyone. Some people, For some people, this is very near and dear to their hearts. But this view has gained such popularity in the evangelical community today and is so dangerous, I believe that I believe the time has come to speak the truth in love and correct as many as are willing to listen objectively. Now I have your attention. Now as I understood my original assignment for this chapel, I was to present the evidence in opposition to the Christian America view. But since that mission has changed, I'm not going to be able to do that this morning. Instead, I'm going to focus on one aspect of the argument that I think is rarely, if ever, addressed. And that is, why is the Christian America view dangerous? I was uh, on the radio this summer in a debate, a two-hour debate, over several states on this issue, whether America was found as a Christian nation. I debated a guy from Alabama. And uh, as I talked with people about it, one of the common reactions was, what difference does it make? Who cares? That was 200 years ago. That was my parents' reaction, by the way. Um, 
That was all 200 years ago. What difference does it make today? Well, apparently some people believe it makes a big difference because there are people around this country who are selling an awful lot of videos that have to do with this particular issue. And they're selling a lot of books. But I have my own beliefs as to why it's important, and I want to share those with you this morning to begin with. Why is the Christian America view dangerous? First, the Christian America view is dangerous because it is theologically wrong. In the church age, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Earthly nations are no longer the primary tools God is using for his work. Rather, the church is, according to 1 Peter 2.9, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You know, the New Testament nowhere suggests that the kingdom is political or identified with a nation or national objectives. In fact, Jesus says the very opposite in John 18.36 when he's speaking before Pilate and also to his disciples in Luke 17.21. There's a second reason why I think that the Christian American view is dangerous. Secondly, it is historically incorrect. I believe Christians should base their arguments and positions on truth and reality, not on myths or history as we wish it had been. I've heard one prominent speaker in this area say, wouldn't, wouldn't um, if your students went to U.S. history class and they heard all this, wouldn't history be a lot more interesting for them? That may be true, but it wouldn't be truthful. It may be more interesting, but is that what we're, what we're really after? You know, it's ironic. Conservative Christians hold up their myth of the golden past when everything was well. Just like secular liberals hold up their myth of a future utopia. It's just one looks back and the other looks forward to some golden days. A third reason why the Christian American view is dangerous is that it tarnishes or taints the Word of God. By designating a mixture, a mixture of Christian and non-Christian influences as simply Christian or biblical or even Judeo-Christian, we attach the authority of the inerrant, infallible Word of God to a mixture of biblical and non-biblical influences. Now that should bother us as believers. A fourth reason why the Christian America view is dangerous. It cheapens and corrupts the gospel. Identifying merely religious, church-going people as Christians makes the gospel one of moral behavior and activities rather than the saving work of Christ and personal commitment to Him. Fifth, a fifth reason that the Christian American view is dangerous. It exalts what God hates. God hates marginal religion. He hates religion per se. 
Scripture clearly teaches that God hates generic, moralizing religion. Worse than a lack of religion. While the founders, the founders of this country were clearly religious, and many of them went to church, they were not, as a rule, distinctively Christian. Christ is not the focus of their lives or their writings. Six, a sixth reason that the Christian American view is dangerous. It causes believers to confuse their American heritage with biblical Christianity. I don't know how many times I see this. Many people, many Christians, lose their ability to distinguish what is truly biblical from what is merely cultural heritage, which we are specifically instructed not to do in Romans 12.2. Many Christians, in my view, in fact worship the tribal God of America rather than the true God of the Bible. For example, the Bible never instructs or indicates that we should be patriotic. The Bible never instructs or indicates that we should vote. The Bible never instructs or indicates that we should fight for justice. The Bible never instructs or indicates that we ought to fight for freedom. The culture tells us all of these things. And we meld them with our Christianity to the point where uh, I heard of pastors this past Sunday who told their parishioners that it would be a sin if they did not vote. That's absurd. Now I ask you, suppose that um, we were voting and the two choices were Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. Would it be a sin if you did not vote? We'll talk about that some more later. Number seven. The seventh reason that the Christian America view is dangerous. It places confidence in processes and institutions rather than the sovereign God. Sometimes idolatrously. The belief that the political system was originally Christian or biblical focuses or directs our efforts toward correcting the political system. It misdirects the efforts and resources of the church toward political solutions. If we could just support the right political agenda. If we could just reverse these certain key Supreme Court decisions then we'd be okay. This flies in the face of Ephesians 6, 12 through 18. Ours is a spiritual battle, not a political one. The root of America's problem, people, is Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. The root of America's problem is not Engel versus Vital that took organized public prayer out of public schools. America had a problem long before that. Number eight. The Christian America view is also dangerous because it accelerates the process of secularization in society. 
You know, I think it's ironic when we have uh, Dr. Whitehead here on Wednesday, who happens to believe in the Christian America view, complaining about all the secularization in society. Well, this view actually accelerates it because believers fail to maintain an independent scriptural position by which to judge and evaluate the culture. They're absorbed, they're co-opted by the culture. And so therefore, the most important independent voice available to stem the tide of secularization is co-opted and rendered impotent. Alistair Begg puts it this way. When we're isolated from our culture, we have something to say, but no audience. When we're absorbed by our culture, we have an audience, but nothing to say. Ninth. The Christian American view is also dangerous because it obscures the principle of evaluating true Christianity by the fruit it produces, rather than simply on the basis of the claims of piety. Just because somebody has the right words, it does not mean that they're a Christian. Just because they know how to speak in public to the choir and say the things that they want to hear, does not make them a Christian. Look at their fruit. Look at what they say when they don't think anybody's listening. Ten. The Christian American view is also dangerous because it reduces the Bible to a mere tool or servant of a political agenda. You know, the most common use of the Bible in politics has been to justify someone's self-interest or a predetermined agenda. And what really disturbs me about this view in talking with people that espouse it, including, for example, the debate that I had this summer, I was very disturbed that for many people who hold this view, proper use or interpretation of the Word of God is not really that important. What is important is that it is quoted or consulted. For example, I was talking with the uh, gentleman uh, on the radio this summer, and um, I pointed out to him the way he, he was listing um, statistics about how often the Bible was quoted by uh, those of the revolutionary period and so on and so forth. And I was saying, yes, that's true, but how was the Bible quoted? How was it used? And I, and I listed for him a number of examples, and they didn't even disturb him. He said, well, what's really important is that they, they thought the Bible was important and they quoted it. Now let me ask you if this is important. In Exodus 1.8, it's talking about the curse of Miraz. They applied this to the king of England. Or excuse me, Exodus 1.8 says, A new king arose over, Jerusalem, over uh, Israel who knew not God. They applied this to the king of England. In Colossians 2.21, Paul says, in talking about Christian liberty, taste not, touch not, etc., in talking about dealing with things that are offered to idols, their application of that verse was that they ought not to drink English tea. Judges 5.23 is the one I was talking about before. It refers to the curse of Miraz for those people who, who uh, abandoned Israel. They applied this to the loyalists who remain true to the king of England instead of going with the revolutionary cause. They, they referred to, many, many times, revelation. And they referred to 
uh, England as the beast, the Antichrist. Now let's look at another uh, couple of passages as well that are, that are generally dealt with today. Turn to John 8. I have to apologize this morning, Brian, that I'm not uh, doing expository preaching. But I have an assignment, and so I'm trying to get through it. And so uh, you'll have to excuse me. Anybody who's interested in some of these things in a, in a more in-depth way can uh, talk to me. I'll be more than happy to talk with you about it. In John 8.32, Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, how many times have you seen um, this verse emblazoned across the stars and stripes at some particular place? This was used by those of the Revolutionary Period in support of the Revolutionary cause. Now, it doesn't seem to bother some people that in the context, what's being talked about here is spiritual freedom from sin. It's not political freedom. It has nothing to do with political freedom. It's spiritual freedom from sin. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.17. Second Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This was used countless times to support the revolution for liberty. Again, this is talking about spiritual liberty from the slavery of sin. It's not talking about political liberty. But let's say it were. Let's go along with the misinterpretation for a minute. Let's say that let's apply this to political liberty. If this is true of political liberty, then the converse would be where, where there is not liberty, the Spirit of the Lord is not present. Right? Well, at the time of the Revolution, 60% of South Carolina's population were slaves. 58% of Georgia's population. So if the misinterpretation is true, then the Spirit of the Lord wasn't here. Because people weren't in liberty. One other passage. Isaiah 33, verse 22. Isaiah 33, 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. You know how this is applied still today on videos that are sent around this country? That this is, this is where the founding fathers got separation of powers. Now excuse me. It looks to me as if the Lord is the judge, the Lord is the lawgiver, the Lord is the king. I don't see any separation. It seems to be teaching the reverse. Unity of power. But because it mentions the three branches of government, I think it's more important that the Bible be used properly than it just that it be consulted or just that it be listed. 
President Clinton, in his inaugural address, used the Bible as well. Changed a few words here and there, took them out of context, applied them to something different, but close enough. Eleventh, why is the Christian America view dangerous? It leads to national idolatry and national self-righteousness. The naturalistic political ideals of this country are treated as if they're on a par with scriptural revelation. Like, for example, the emphasis on political freedom. The Bible doesn't emphasize political freedom. The emphasis on equality of all men. Do you know that a number of, of uh, people in the revolutionary period rejected Calvinism because of the teachings of Calvinism that not everybody will be saved? That some are chosen? That some are elect? And even that Christ only died for some of them? And it didn't fit with their political belief in the equality of all men. So they rejected Calvinism. The Bible doesn't teach the equality of all men. Another one. Uh, God-given rights. We see it in the Declaration of Independence, right? Endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Where? Where does the Bible... Uh, where does the... Does God give us rights in the Bible? They would say, well, it says thou shalt not steal, therefore we have a right to property. That isn't what that's saying. It's saying you don't have a right. You don't have a right to steal. If the, if the Ten Commandments said, uh, thou shalt not take thy neighbor's Mercedes, would we then say that we have a God-given right to a Mercedes? Just because somebody doesn't have a right to do something doesn't mean that you do. One other one. Government by consent. The Bible isn't interested in government by consent. David didn't rule by consent. He ruled because Samuel chose him, because God told him to anoint him. Jesus stood before Pilate in John 19.11, and he said, You have authority over me from above. Pilate wasn't elected. And certainly the Jews didn't give their consent to the Romans conquering them. For that matter, who's going who's to be voting when Jesus takes over in the millennium? <laughs> Government by consent is not a biblical principle. Neither are the other things I've just mentioned. Twelve. Christian American view is also dangerous because it causes Christians to rely on the state to do tasks that should be done by Christians. If we believe that the culture is basically Christian and that the nation is basically Christian, then we just let them do things and we trust them. And we ask them to do things that we ought to be doing. You realize that the solution to all human ills do not lie in political structures? Many of our culture's deepest problems stem from religious error, family breakdowns, economic greed, and personal immorality. It's naive to believe that any president or any congress of either party can solve them. Public life does not consist solely of individuals and the state. There are also a number of what Michael Novak calls mediating structures. 
a number of structures between the individual and the state, such as church, the family, the workplace, the neighborhood. These are also appropriate places to turn for certain societal solutions, or at least for help. And we need to be able to distinguish between the proper responsibilities of government and the responsibilities of other institutions, instead of just turning everything over to the government. We got a problem, let the government solve it. Educating morality. You expect the state to do that? Some people are shocked when uh, Dr. Whitehead shows a film and shows things that are being done in schools and so on. Why should you be shocked? All kinds of behaviors threaten my family and threaten society as a whole. But not all of these behaviors should be outlawed or published by public law. For example, uh, a family's TV watching habits threaten the family. But that's not a measure for government to step in. Spotty church attendance by a family threatens the family. Should we have the government intervene? Why do we ask them to intervene in other things that we think are threatening or bothersome or annoying? If we believe that the culture is basically Christian, that America was founded as a Christian nation, then we're much more likely to assume that the state will be doing these things that we think ought to be done, rather than taking responsibility for them ourselves. Thirteen, the Christian American view is also dangerous because it increases the tendency to violence. When one is convinced that God is on our side, and the focus is on awakening the system, violence frequently results. We see that in the shootings of the abortion doctors. Is that appropriate activity for believers? I think not. You know, it's interesting, speaking of the Founding Fathers, they knew all about Christian nations, nations that named the name of Christ and claimed to be, etc. Most of the European wars that they were trying to avoid were started by those Christian nations over religious issues. And they purposely rejected that perspective. Finally, 14, the Christian America view is dangerous because it emphasizes redeeming the world system rather than redeeming people. The whole focus is on just fixing this thing. It's a little out of whack, we need a few adjustments here and there, a little tune-up. If we could just get our political system squared away, if we could just get the right justices on the court, if we could just elect a Republican Congress, then we'll be looking pretty. To say that we can turn America around if we just support the right political agenda or reverse certain Supreme Court decisions is naive and ignores scriptural realities. The church in America would be better served to focus its energies on fulfilling the Great Commission and being salt and light 
We should be calling people to, as the writer of Hebrews calls it in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, we should be calling on people to a better country, that is, a heavenly one, not wasting our resources trying to redeem a dying earthly system. Well, that fulfills part of my original assignment. Now, if I were to, I, I, I want to keep my students happy, too. One of my students wants me to say, I have tapes in the lobby, which you can, um, I actually do have tapes of my debate this summer, but uh, anyway. <coughs> now I need to, to turn to the other side of my assignment in response to Mondays and Wednesdays messages and in response to what I've just said, which is, granted, pretty negative, and I apologize for that. But I think it's important to have certain things said. Now I want to turn to a more positive side. A lot of students have been confused, and, and Dave Maddox asked me also Wednesday to, to do this. Um, after Monday and Wednesday, what should we do? That's the question that's been sort of floating around. Okay, here's all these bad things that are happening. Here's the thing. What should we do? So I'm going to address that for a minute and run through a number of things. And, and because of time constraints, it's going to be sort of a Reader's Digest jet tour. Um, but grab what you can and that you find useful. First, the first thing you should do is develop a biblical approach to politics. The first thing you should do is look in here, then go look at other stuff. Secondly, on Monday, Sam Casey said, if you'll recall, we should do justice. What does that mean? For us as individuals, it essentially means to do good. Look at 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, starting verse 12. First Peter 2.12 Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Look at verse 15 For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Look at verse 20 for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. How do you do justice? Do good. Do what's right. There's no great difficult formula. We don't need you know, a 12-sentence definition. Plato wrote an entire book trying to define what is justice. It's not that tough. Do good. Do what is right. Let's be a little bit more specific. Jesus summed it up this way. In Matthew 22, verses 39 and 40, he said, Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to do justice? The whole law, he said, is summed up in this. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. A good Old Testament summary is in Jeremiah 22, verse 3. 
Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness. Deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. <coughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. Do good. Do right. Now let me add something to what Sam Casey said, however. Where we sh whereas we should do justice, we should not, however, expect to receive it. Catch that? I won't make you repeat it, but... Uh, we should do justice, but we should not expect to receive it. We should do justice, but we should not demand it for ourselves. Time constraints don't allow us to look, but Ecclesiastes 5.8, if you're interested, Ecclesiastes 5.8, Luke 6.35, 1 Peter 2.20-23, passage we were just in, 1 Corinthians 6. Revelation 6, 9-11. All these passages establish the idea that we as believers should do justice, but not expect it and not demand it. Alright, what else should we do? We should develop a biblical approach. We should do justice. What else should we do? We should submit. Romans 13. Paul says in Romans 13, as you're all familiar, let every person, that's everybody by the way, be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. You know why the Republicans won both houses of Congress? Because God wanted them to. You know why Bill Clinton's president? That's right. God wants him there. We are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. What does that mean? It means recognize their authority over you. You want to know what to do? Recognize the government's authority over you. What else should we do? We should obey. We should obey. Titus, chapter 3. Be obedient to the governing authorities. Now, submission, being in subjection to the governing authorities, is an absolute principle. We should always... Every person at all times, every person is in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. All persons, all authorities, submit yourselves. Be in subjection. Recognize their authority over you. Obedience, however, is not a universal principle. We are to obey to a point. The point at which we do not obey is when they ask us to disobey God's law. <laughs> Then, at that point, we must disobey. Acts 5, 28-29, and Acts 4, 19-20. So we should obey up until the point that the government asks us to disobey God's law. But generally, our lives should be reflective of obedience. We should drive the speed limit on the California freeway. What else should we do? We should honor and respect the government. Hey, there's a novel idea in America. We should honor and respect the government. You can read about it in Romans 13:7 and 1 Peter 2:17, Titus 3:2, and other passages. 
What else should we do? We should pray for the government. I was very proud of Dave asking that question Wednesday. One of the few things we are actually specifically told to do concerning our relationship to government is to pray for the government. For the government. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. And in Jeremiah 29, 7. What else should we do? We should be a prophetic witness. We should speak out for the truth before men. Matthew 10, 16 through 20. Luke 11, 39 through 51. And then the numerous examples of the Apostle Paul in Acts, which I can give you later if you ask me. What else should we do? We should pay our taxes. See, I knew I'd get somebody else upset who wasn't yet upset. We should pay our taxes. Well, what if the government uses our taxes for mean and nasty things? Pay your taxes. It's not your responsibility what the government does with the money. Your responsibility is to be obedient to the Lord who says, pay your taxes. Well, where does he say that? Romans 13, 6 and 7. Matthew 17, 24 through 27. Matthew 22, 17 through 22. And Luke 20, 22 through 25. Jesus paid taxes to a government that's a lot more corrupt than that of the United States. What else should we do? Well, here's something we can do. We don't need to. Exercise privileges given by the state. If the state gives us privileges, we're perfectly free to exercise them. Paul gives us that example, among other things. In Acts 22, 25 through 28, and Acts 25, 10 and 11. Which brings us to voting. You can vote. You don't have to vote. There is no scriptural argument that political channels offer such unique opportunities for doing good and loving your neighbor that participation is required. Voting is fine. I vote. Somebody said the other day, somebody said in class, Mr. Fraser says we shouldn't vote. I vote. I think you ought to vote if you know what you're doing. And if there's anybody worth voting for, which in this election, that was few and far between. But there's no mandate to vote. You don't have to. You can. You can exercise that privilege given by the state, but you should do it wisely. I won't vote for somebody who supports murder. And I don't think you would if somebody came out and said, I support killing all 10-year-olds. So I won't vote for somebody who's pro-abortion. I can't in good, con in good conscience put somebody in office that supports the killing of innocent people. What else can you do? Exercise the privileges given by the state. You can lobby. You can do legal demonstrations. You can petition. You can uh, speak out. You can use freedom of the press. What else can you do? You can act when you're in positions or occupations where you're allowed to. Joseph, Daniel, Nehemiah, all give us examples of that. You can act on school boards. You can be on zoning boards. You can join. You can run crisis pregnancy centers. 
Homes run with mothers, halfway houses, AIDS hospices, adoption centers, do counseling. You should, what else should we do? We should support capital punishment. God instituted it. The Bible supports it. Genesis 9.6, Romans 13.4, Matthew 26.52. We should uphold the sanctity of human life. Those are some things we should and can do. Now I have two minutes left for my third. What should you not do? What should you not do? First of all, you should not obey. Wait a minute, you just said we should obey. Yes, you should not obey when the government asks you to disobey God. And only then, by the way. That's the only biblical reason for disobedience. Secondly, you should not resist authority. Romans 13.2 Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. You should not resist authority. That is, you remain in subjection. The absolute principle, remain in subjection, always recognize their authority over you. You may have to disobey a specific law, but then recognize their authority over you. And do what? Take the consequences. Do not resist authority. Specifically told not to. Third, we should not return evil for evil. Romans 12, 17 and 19, and a number of other passages. Fourth, we should not disobey God in order to bring a good result. Romans 3, 8 throws out the concept of the end justifying the means. You don't disobey God in order to honor God. See that? So what does that mean? Alright, now I'm getting everybody else that isn't yet upset with me, upset with me. You should not support Operation Rescue. Operation Rescue is disobeying other laws to protest a law that they don't like. That is not biblical. You only disobey when the government asks you to disobey God. Nobody, the government is not asking anybody to get an abortion. And the Bible has no stand on trespassing laws that you ought not to obey them. Or that you ought not to break up a demonstration when it becomes declared unlawful. A Christian who resorts to unbiblical methods to deal with a situation has a God who is incapable of controlling events. The God of the Bible is capable of controlling events. What else should you not do? Fifth, you should not strike. 1 Peter 2.18, Ephesians 6.5, we are to obey our employers, whether they are good and reasonable or not, or whether they are unjust and unfair. Sixth, what should we not do? We should not sue a fellow believer. Don't take a believer to court, 1 Corinthians 6. Seven. We should not waste our time and resources on things that are unimportant to God, like organized prayer in public school. You know, the Bible teaches 
that we ought not to use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do when we pray in Matthew 6-7. Or we ought not to pray publicly just for effect in Matthew 6-5-6. Most states have state-written prayers, which even those who are in favor of school prayer admit when they're trying to make the argument are, were very bland to whom it may concern prayers. Well, let's turn it around the other way. What's, what good is it then? It's not real prayer. You know the Bible teaches that God only listens to the prayers of believers? In John 9.31, Romans 8.26, Proverbs 15.29, and Proverbs 28.9. So the repeated, state-written prayers of non-believers don't mean anything. Why are we wasting our time and resources trying to do them? God's not even listening. What else should we not do? i got to be done in a minute or Dr. Pilkey will personally kill me. We must not waste our time and resources trying to redeem a dying earthly system. What else should we not do? We should not waste time longing for a mythical golden past when all was well. Read Ecclesiastes 7.10 if you don't think that that's biblical. And finally, we should not expect too much from a world system ruled by Satan. The Bible tells us that Satan rules this world system. Why do we expect so much from it? 1 John 5.19, John 12.31, John 14.30, Matthew 4.89, Luke 4.5-7. Satan rules this world system. You want it to teach you morality? Ultimately, God will judge because, as Jesus said in John 3.19, ultimately God will judge because men love the darkness rather than the light. Not because they had a flawed or misguided political system. Let's pray.